Hello, podcast friends. This is Fran from First Online with Fran. There's no place like us. And my guest today is someone who I met accidentally through the newsletter from the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And they happen to be running a special campaign called Hashtag Five Women Artists. And they are asking us to share, amplify, and celebrate women artists who are changing the world. And that's exactly what my podcast does. And that is exactly who I am going to be talking about today. My guest is Maggie Stern. She's a children's book author. She's a folk artist and founder of Maggie Stern Stitches. This is a stock company that features her illustrations of notable women from Maya Angelou to Greta Thunberg to Greta Gloria Steinem. So welcome, Maggie Stern, to First Online with Fran. Thank you, Fran, and thank you so much for inviting me. So who doesn't love socks? How did you create this idea as an artistic endeavor? That is a very good question. Well, I've always loved socks ever since I read Harriet the Spy, which is my Bible. And in Harriet, are you familiar with that book? Do you know Harriet the Spy? I am, but talk a little bit about it. Okay, well, Harriet the Spy is a book that I read when I was 11. And she, like me, grew up in New York City in the same sort of neighborhood that I grew up in. And Harriet was a spy. And it was the first of its kind of children's books where the main character wrote everything that she felt. A lot of reviewers felt that Harriet was very mean because she would write things like, well, this is where I got my sock idea, basically. There was a little boy in her class. He was so boring, she said, that the only thing notable about him was his purple socks. She found him boring. I'm not going to read you any of the quotes, but Harriet wrote everything that she thought, and it was very spur of of the moment, and it wasn't like anything that had ever been written before. And she talked about how boring people were, and she also was very profound and wrote about what people who were lost looked like and lost not in having lost a wristwatch or a cell phone. Well, this was back in 1967 or so that the book was written and that I read it, but lost as in lost. So I decided I was going to be Harriet the Spy, and I loved the boy with the purple socks because that was the one thing that was notable about him. I think his name was Pinky Whitehead. <laughs> so, poor Pinky Whitehead. Better that he was known as the boy with the purple socks. So that was the beginning of two things for me. It was the beginning of realizing that socks could be a distinguishing feature, as well as made me start keeping, I didn't call it my spy book, as Harriet did, but I started keeping a journal. And I paid attention to everything around me. And in school, my favorite thing to do was write notes and pass them to my best friends. And I went to a school very much like where Harriet went. So that was partly the beginning of both my wanting to write children's books and my fascination with socks and what one could do with socks and how it could be the only feature or the only accessory that someone would take note of. So that's 
sort of an answer to your question, I think. Absolutely. It's an answer to the question. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about how the stocks are distinguishing feature. How does that play into your creation? Well, you know, creativity is a really interesting thing. And there's no exact link from where one creative idea merges into another and merges into another. Everything plays off of each other. So I really started with noticing that in Harriet, and this was a tiny piece of Harriet. I mean, the book is still, and if we talk about COVID, it is still something that I go back to repeatedly. I read books from my childhood that I loved. So in Harriet, it was just a little detail, a very boring boy who wore purple socks. So as I grew older and I did write several children's books and publish several several children's books, I was always aware of little details like socks or gloves or whatever. So there's not a direct conscious line between Pinky Whitehead and myself. It's more of an unconscious rendering that evolved. And I think in Harriet, all of Harriet is about a girl a young girl, an honest, perhaps sometimes brutal young girl who's trying to find out who she is. And I think for me, that's what writing was, trying to find out who I was and what was different about me from other people. And one of those things were I was shy. I didn't really want to be noticed, but in a certain way, I probably did. So I always wore wild socks, not plain purple socks, but polka dot socks and different colored socks and mixed matched socks way before, this is back in the 1960s, way before there was such a thing as mixed matched socks. So that became one of my features that when people from my school talked about me, they would remember me as the one that always wore the crazy socks, the different socks. That is a great story. I think it's interesting that we both grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was a revolutionary time for women. And I think the image of women was evolving from that quiet girl behavior to being forthright and voicing our thoughts and ideas. And I think that experience has influenced how you have been thrusted into this artistic world. Did your family have any influence on your artistic endeavors? Well, like Harriet, (laughs) I'm one of four kids. The age difference between me and my siblings is many years. So I sort of grew up as an only child in a world surrounded by my friends. And I went to a private school in New York City, very much like Harriet's. And in my school, in the class below me, was Betty Friedan's daughter. And growing up in the 60s, as you know, so much was going on. And what was going on in my school and with Betty Friedan and her daughter, who was truly back then the quietest, shyest kid in the whole world, having a mother who was so outspoken was mortifying to her, but illuminating to the kids myself included, in the class above her. 
So it was the time of Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, and then it was the Vietnam War, and it was a time of protests, and it was when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I mean, it was turbulent, and many of us started to find our voices at that particular time. You mentioned before how turbulent the times were and and how we all felt kind of lost. I loved what you said. The little boy, these times, we, we're all feeling kind of lost where we are now. How do you use your thoughts as a source of a, a statement of rebellion or solidarity or hope that you can give people to your thoughts? What I try to do, really with all my art and with the books that I wrote, is is give hope in the most difficult and trying times. I think initially it was not something conscious that I was doing. I started writing when I, before I read Harriet, I was writing in school. And I was writing stories that I think I wished somebody had written to me about finding hope in the darkest of times, which is really what Harriet, there's a line in Harriet that says something like, a good spy never give up. Life is a struggle. A good spy never quits. And that became my motto. I mean, for such a long time that I thought, gee, when I die on my gravestone, I'm going to have a line that says, a good spy never quits. In these dark times, I, and with all my socks, I try to be positive and honor Honor now with COVID and with these with George Floyd and the horrible things that are going on. It does remind me of of being back in the '60s and the riots in New York City, which were unheard of before in my generation. I, from the time I was seven, I would walk to and from school by myself. And then in the in 1968, right after right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And my father died, and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. It was a time where New York City just completely changed into a very scary place. And we all suddenly had to walk home with friends. I was mugged a few times. I had a cigarette burned in my... I mean, it was just absolutely unfathomable back then because I was living in a bubble, and I went from living in a bubble to being in the real world, going underwater and surfacing... It was as surreal as COVID is. I didn't know where I was. So in my writing, I tried to find where I was. And with my socks, starting in 2016, when the president was elected, I decided the only thing that I could do or that I felt I could do was honor people, particularly women, who had done amazing things against all odds, like Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks and the suffragists, who no one has ever heard of, that I was going to honor women in the best possible light. And as a writer, what I'm doing, the books that I did publish were children's books. They were picture books, and they were easy readers. So they were words. I didn't do the illustration. I only did the writing. And with my socks... I feel like I am doing what I was meant to be doing because a picture book, a perfect picture book, is the marriage between art and text. It has to be a great union. 
And when I started doing my sacks, of course, I didn't realize this at first at all. I came to socks as something I had always worn. It was a statement to me as a kid that I could be different by my socks, among many other things. But at the age of 10, my socks represented who I was. That what I'm doing now is really a picture book in the form of socks. I have on the soles of each foot, I have a quote from the person I'm paying tribute to. My main source and who I started with was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I've done probably seven different styles. And right before you called, I was doing a new one because what I do to calm myself down and that I love is to draw and sew and to stitch people. Instead of going into darkness in 2016, I decided... I was not going to do anything that was negative, that I was going to put positivity and hope into the world. And now, with COVID-19 looming over our heads every day, I have done a Fauci mask honoring the brilliant Dr. Fauci. I've also obviously contributed much of my proceeds to different organizations and first responders and all sorts of people, but I have done a series of socks called the Hope Collection, where I've done saying thank you to the courageous nurses, both men, women, people of color, everyone. And I've done a sock of Governor Cuomo, people that I feel like have done an amazing job and who we listen to. And then I put things with Fauci. I had hashtag science, hashtag data, hashtag facts, because he's the one that's going to, with the help of the other brilliant scientists and others, are going to figure out a, a vaccine that's going to help us in the long run. So, so some people wear their socks, wear their, wear their hearts on their sleeves. If you put your heart on your socks, I think that is absolutely commendable and why I was so fascinated by this project. You started first as a children's author that you needed to voice your ideas and provide some kind of model for children. What was one of your favorite books or one of the ones that perhaps served as a bridge to this new invention of yours? Well, my most favorite book was Harriet the Spy. I liked reading any book. I had a librarian when I was very young that I loved, and I loved to read. I think reading, you know, reading is fundamental. And I went to the librarian and I said, I love books about animals, but I could not read any book where any animal died. I was a picky reader. So even Charlotte's Web, which is still in my top 10 favorite books, I can't read the part where where Charlotte dies. It's just too painful and too real. And she's alone. She's so alone. And it resonates to what's happening now. So my librarian would give me, feed me books, just feed me books. I would go all the time and she was wonderful. Well, I also had a teacher, as I mentioned to you before, when I was in the third grade, who was Peggy Parrish and she wrote the Amelia Bedelia series and was an absolutely fabulous teacher, really encouraged me to keep on writing, even though she was teaching math and I was writing stories. So 
I wasn't always learning the, the curriculum, but she was very supportive of writing. And one of the best things that happened to me is when I published my very first Easy Reader, and she was long dead, and we had the same editor, ironically. My editor oh, wow. had been had been Peggy Parrish's editor. And initially, she was alive before I published my first book. And Susan Hirschman, who I've done a sock of, which is my favorite sock, and she was my editor and is about 88 years old. And is she, she worked at Macmillan, and then she started Green Willow Books, which is a division of HarperCollins. She and Ursula Le Guin, are, I mean, uh, Ursula Nordstrom are the two probably best editors of all time. Ursula wow. Nordstrom discovered Marie Sendak and Margaret Wise Brown and all kinds of people that are household names. And Louise Fitzhugh, who wrote Harriet the Spy. So she wanted me to see Peggy Parrish again in my 20s, and I didn't. And I don't remember why I didn't, but I really regret that. And after my, actually it was my first Easy Reader, but not my first published book, one of the reviewers compared, it was nothing like Amelia Bedelia, but the rhythm and the the joyous quality was compared to Peggy Parrish. They didn't know I had Peggy Parrish as a teacher in the third grade. That was really cool. And of course, my editor, Susan Hirschman, loved that. So that was a lot of fun. Another point, I was a teacher for 30 years, an English and theater teacher, and I also taught children's lit in a high school class. And one of the things that you can only hope to do with your students is to inspire them to be all that they can be. So shout out to teachers, first of all. And second of all, was there something in your stories, children's stories that you wrote that really voiced what you wanted to hear as a little girl for other little girls? Truly, I wrote what I wanted to write was novels. And the novels that I wrote that were not published were books I wrote to a friend of mine because she was like me as a child. And I wrote both for her, because I always, even with my picture books, I pick someone that I'm talking to, because I'm just not writing in a vacuum. And art, in the end, is about communicating. I'm about the process. I love what I do. And my goal with children's books was that I publish one book in my lifetime, and that everything else was a bonus. That when I was long gone, there would be a little place on a bookshelf with one of my books. And I never lost that. When Susan took my first book, having turned down many books before that, I had four little kids at home. I was outside watering my garden, and Susan said, welcome to the family. Welcome to Green Willow. And that hose came inside the house. I sprayed the whole house. I was so excited. I just couldn't believe it. It was a total <laughs> highlight. And part of what made that story so wonderful is that she didn't take any of my novels. And it was my novels that were really the books that I was writing to myself as a child. And they were sort of like Harriet, that don't give up. Life is tough. Life is tough. It's not all tough, but you've got to find your purpose or what makes you happy, what's your drive, and give back to others. And that's what I was writing about. I was writing, I think many writers have, they don't have that many different stories to tell. They have a million different ways of telling the story. But my story really was, you'll be okay. It will be okay. You're not alone in the world. You may feel alone in the world, but everybody else out there feels alone too. 
So that was what I was trying to make the connection. And in my art, in all my art, and I've done all kinds of different art through the last 30 years, I keep reinventing myself, which is one of the things I love about life, is you keep learning more and more things about yourself, are the eyes. And I go crazy about eyes because I want the eyes of all my socks and all my characters in any form of art that I've done to be looking at you the way you want to be seen. So to me, that's the most important thing of even my socks. And I I design them, and then I have someone who manufactures him. And the poor guy, because they're, they're socks. You know, people don't really look at the little details of them. They capture the essence of them, not little teeny, like, pupils of an eye. And I keep saying, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. But the sock isn't looking at me in the way I want her to be looking at me. She's looking away from me or she's looking up so that if you look at one of my socks, you'll feel seen. I know that sounds sort of silly and it's in my head, but it's important to me. And it's what I want to say to everyone. I see you. You are seen. And that's still, that's still what I do. And I really love what I do and I love the process of what I do and I love drawing the pictures or stitching. I can, I have restitched eyes so many times. I can't tell you. And there's another book that I read that inspired me and I have quite a story about that. She died a couple of years ago. Her name is M.B. Gopstein and she wrote books that were given to children that were not really children's books. They were very Zen-like books. Took her a couple of years to draw one little tiny picture that was basically one line. And she wrote a book called Goldie the Dollmaker. And Goldie is an artist who carves dolls. And every little kid in the world wants a rosy doll. And the reason they want the rosy doll is because of how she looks. And there was some line which I don't remember about her. Her smiles and her eyes as being heartbreaking. And I got that. And that's a book. I actually, the first thing I ever published, I published two two things. One was in the Washington Post, and it was a review of one of M.B. Gofstein's books, which was a great honor. And when she died, one of the lines that they use in everything about her is a line from my review, which was probably written in 1979. And the other first piece I did for a magazine for children, which you may know, called The Horn Book, which has been around forever. And I did a second look at Harriet the Spy. And that was the first literary piece that I ever published. And I was very proud of that. Isn't it interesting how our lives are such a synchronous moment? And just when we think this is the place where I'm supposed to be, another thing pops up and you realize, oh, I'm supposed to go along that path. How did you make the leap from being a children's author to becoming a sock stitcher inventor? Well, there are a million steps in my journey. (laughs) (laughs) And a good sock helps one walk in the journey. So I didn't just go from being a children's book author to a sock designer. I went from countless, I mean, too many things for this phone call, but I did go from not writing children's books because mostly when I wanted to write were novels and they didn't sell. And then I started making out of the blue. I think I told you I was visiting my son at a sleepaway camp and it was his very last year and on the bunk below him, he was probably 13 years old, some 
bunkmate had made a, a doll out of a sock, out of a white sock, like kids do when they're in preschool. It had two black button eyes. It was a plain sock. And there was something about that sock that spoke to me. I can't explain it. It's what happens with all my art. Out of nowhere, there's I'm flooded with this thunderbolt. And I looked at that doll, and I looked at Sam, my son, and I said, I could do that. I mean, I knew this is I was going to go home, and I just had to do it. And he rolled his eyes, and he said, oh, Mom, do me one favor. And I said, of course, what? He said, when you make the sock, he paused, when you make a 100 of them, please do not send them to me, which I thought was pretty funny because I never just do one of anything. I tend to be really obsessive because I love what I do. So I did. I went home. I tried one white sock. It was completely boring, and it was nothing. And then I continued from that to finding things on the street. You mentioned before about finding the extraordinary and the ordinary. And always since I was a kid, I've picked up things from the street and made things with them. I just would make collages or I created everything out of nothing. And I was curious about everything. How did somebody lose a sock? I was obsessed with why I always, I always found a single sock on the street and would wonder where it came from. So to finish with the, the Sam story, I started making more and more elaborate socks with keys as noses and zippers for mouths and teeny tiny socks and big socks and soccer socks, and it became a whole art form. And I sold to many galleries. They were all one of a kind. Some of them were guardian angels. Some of them flew from the ceiling. They became more and more elaborate, and I loved it. Then I was done. You know, I always reach a place where I get a certain calmness, and I know that I'm finished. So I finished with that. And to segue into what I do now, it made perfect sense to go from making one-of-a-kind art. I didn't call them dolls. I called them soft sculptures. And then I started doing gloves, but mostly it was socks. And I thought, how perfect to go from creating art socks into combining art and text and making an actual sock that people could wear that would recognize Many people, many hidden figures, many unknown women who should be recognized, who have just incredible, incredible things. So I love that. I love doing the research. I love finding out. I never was interested in history when I was growing up. It was facts and dates that you memorized for a test, and then you could forget them as soon as you memorized them. And I had this knee-jerk reaction Initially, if thinking, Ugh, I'm not going to do his people from way back when, it's going to feel like history all over again. And it didn't. I mean, it just didn't. I was reading about these lives, and I was riveted by them. And I thought, other people should know, and it's okay that they don't know. So when my unheard of some the suffragists, who I know people should know who they are, but we don't. Many of us don't. So I put on one sock a very short description, very short line, saying who they were. Maybe their years of life to death, but what they did that was so notable. And on the other sock, I put the quote, and all my quotes are positive and hopeful and full of courage that these women did not give up. And I want not just our generation, 
but the generation, our next generation and the generation after that, to know who these women are. And some men, I mean, Fauci and Cuomo and others I've done, Obama, that I feel like need to be recognized and remembered. How about Michelle Obama? I did Michelle Obama. I've done two Michelle Obamas. How did you market this? Like, how did you manage to take your art and manufacture it in a way that so many people could buy these socks? Well, those socks were all one of a kind. They weren't, none of them were manufactured. They were all made by hand, every inch of it, by me in my living room. I did not do the marketing. I would make them at home with the help of my youngest kids' friends, because they would come in. My kids were mortified in the beginning. It's like, oh, she's doing, now what she's doing, now what she's making. But their friends, you know, they weren't my kids. Their friends were really intrigued. I loved it. There was one time I was making something, and one of my youngest son's friends came in, who all my kids' friends, they keep their friends forever. So I've known them since they were five years old. My youngest, my baby, is now almost 28. And they would come in and they would watch what I would do and they would give me suggestions. And I loved suggestions and I loved how they thought. And I loved when I was writing books and I'd read them out loud to them. They were brutally honest and would say, ugh, it's really boring right now. And they were always right. It's like, thank you. So I would take out chunks. So there was one time I was sitting here and Sam, my youngest, was upstairs doing something and I had probably six of his friends sitting around talking to me about what I was making. It was a sock doll back then, I think, or maybe I'd gone on to paper mache because I used to be a puppeteer. As I said, there are too many things to go into of my creative past because I really started at age seven of being a creator. But Sam came downstairs and there I was with all his friends and he looked at me and said, Mom, don't you have any friends your own age? It was really funny. I said, well, I was here first, and they all came in. So anyway, having his friends love what I did certainly gave me a lot of credit in my own family. Friends that would say, I know someone in a gallery. Can I bring this to a gallery and see what they say? And I'd say, go right ahead. I'm not going. I'm just too shy. It's not that I'm shy. I don't want to promote myself. That's just not who I am. My goal with my business, my manufactured work, was to be in the folk art. And I got into the folk art my first year, and truly, everything else I feel is a bonus. I mean, it's I never lose sight of where I started and who I am, and I won't compromise who I am for anything. I mean, I can't tell you how many suggestions people have had of people I should do that I don't believe in, that I don't like, and I won't for anything. I won't do it. I just won't do it. Somebody else can do it. It's having a core, having integrity. Yes. And, well, that comes through quite clearly. Your, oh, thank your you. Your passion for your art and for the purpose of your art is truly inspiring. I know that with every single thing that I make, yeah, I put my soul into it. I can't do anything without my soul being in it. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten impervious. It used to be when I wrote children's books, if I got turned down, I just crumpled up. But now as a much, much older person, I love feedback. I love suggestions. You just play. It's all playing. You show up. And that's what life is. You have to show up every day. You show up and something happens. If you stay in bed, you might as well forget it. And you're not one to lay back and just sit by and watch life go by. 
hoorah for you. Bravo. Well, I can't because if it goes I by, know. I'm going to miss something. And I find oh, yeah. that when yeah. when I don't, there's plenty of times, like everybody else, that I that I hit a wall and I don't have an idea. And I think, well, that's just part of the process. And I don't push it because you yeah. can't push creativity. And I find that walking for me, something happens. I go for a walk and wham, and it's not all the time, but I go for a walk and I'm thinking about something entirely different and something just pops into my head and it's, I just grab it. I almost watch it go by and I think, gee, if I weren't paying attention on some level, I would have missed that and I've got to go home and do it. And that's the best feeling in the whole world. I mean, it's so exciting to go home and and start drawing. It's just, it's heaven. It's where you belong. And that's what we all hope we can find during the journey of our lives. What can you say to people out there, how important the arts are? It's a difficult one because those that do art, you don't want to, you're preaching to the choir because they know, they know how important art is. And I don't think that you can convince people otherwise. I mean, I say, try, just it's salvation. But I don't think that you can convince certain people are too, there are too many labels. Everybody is labeled. And with art, what I say to people, all I can do is pass on my message and say, sit down or social distance with me outside. And and here's a pad and here's some pencils and just draw a bunch of circles and let's just talk and just take, and, and it's freedom. Somebody will say, it's a stream of consciousness. It's like a meditation. If you take a bunch of colored pencils and you don't think about it, you just draw, you just scribble. Sometimes the less you think, the more creative you are. We have too much baggage. And again, being probably in the last chapter of my life is very different from being in my 20s and 30s and 40s. I know. (laughs) I mean, I've got the aches and pains that go with aging, but there's also that freedom of thought where don't tell me what I can do. The whole point of art is I get to make up the rules. And if I want to break the rules, I break the rules, period. That's what it says on my website. Art has no rules. Right. Art has no rules. And that is a wonderful message for us to close our podcast with. Thank you, Maggie Stern, for sharing your time with me on First Online with Fran. I wish you uh-huh. the very best. And I, I'm just so inspired by your passion for what you do. And we will talk, uh, we will include projects that you're doing on the uh, blog that I'll be sending out with the uh-huh. podcast. So we'll follow. So if anybody's interested in learning more about that, not only to your website, but the first online friend website, we can let people know how to learn more about you and your work. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Fran. And you know I'm such a fan of yours. So thank you for talking to me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's a okay. you. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at We Chief Studio Productions.